Today's reading comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, on page 1751 of the Black Church Bibles. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised in Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign over your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Thanks, Jamie, and good morning, everyone. If you haven't met me before, my name is Carl. I'm the pastor of the church here. It's lovely to be here with you today. I have, as many of you know, a croaky voice that's been going on for the last couple of weeks. I apologize for that. It's a little bit like a surgeon losing his hand, a preacher not being able to speak, but I hope you can hear me today, Um, and if not... I apologize for that. Um, yell at Ian and he'll try and turn the microphone up a little bit. I want to start this morning by asking you to run a quick mental check. When was the last time that you changed your thinking? When was the last time you changed your thinking with respect to an idea or an issue? When was the last time you changed your opinion? Change is a hard thing, I think. It takes hard work, especially if we're trying to change practices or habits or behaviours. I think change is a difficult thing. When I left university as a young engineer, I went to, went to work in a factory that made glass bottles. It was a hot place to work. It was noisy. It was dirty. It was a very dangerous place to work. The bottle factory ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and And in many ways, the bottle factory was a really old-fashioned factory. Didn't have internet access on our computers. And we had Lotus Notes as our email client. If you ever remember that, you can know it was a long time ago that that was popular. This factory was kind of old-fashioned in many ways. And then one day, when I arrived at work, me and everyone else in the factory kind of found found a book on our desks or in our pigeonholes. Um, Chris is going to throw a picture of the book up on the screen behind me. Some of you might have read this book. If you've ever been in the corporate world, you probably recognize this book. It means really only one thing. If you ever 
see this book, it means that change is coming. Change is coming. And you probably are not going to like the change if you get this book on your pigeonhole or in your desk. That's what it means. I've been thinking about this question a little bit recently. Is it possible for people to change? Just think about this in your own life for a moment. Are you trying to change anything? And what's your experience been with trying to change things? You probably heard me talk a little bit this year about trying to go to the gym a bit more often, trying to lift my level of fitness. But it's hard trying to change practices. What's even harder, though, I think, is changing our hearts. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we read there about the the prophet speaking about a time where God will give his people new hearts. And he speaks of people having hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone. I wonder for you, does it ever feel like your heart is stuck back in the Stone Age? Change is difficult, especially when change relies on our own strength of will. I wonder this morning, do you think it's possible to have a changed heart? Do you think it's possible to have a heart that longs after God and the things that he wants our hearts to long after? And I ask you this question because, in a way, I think this is the question that lies behind this section of Romans. I listened this week to a talk from Andrew Hurd, who's a pastor in New South Wales. I'm really grateful for his insight into this passage. I'm standing firmly on his shoulders this morning. This idea of change comes from Andrew. You see, in Romans so far, we've seen two things with great clarity. First, we've seen that all people, you and me, all of us have fallen short of what God desires. We are, or at least we were, as the Bible puts it, under the wrath of God. And rightly so, because of our our sinfulness. We didn't worship God as we should have. He didn't have our allegiance. Instead, we live lives for ourselves. And we've seen in Romans so far that this is a problem for us because we were created to be part of God's family, to be in relationship with him, to live for him. And yet our sinfulness has made that impossible. You could say that the state of our hearts makes that impossible. The second thing we've seen in Romans is that, that God has a solution to this problem. God in his great mercy and his love. He's poured out his wrath against sin on his own son. We've seen so far that God has dealt with our sinfulness. And he's done that through the sacrificial death of his son. You know, last last week we were looking at Romans chapter 5. We saw in that chapter kind of the grace of God at work. Chapter 5 of Romans is a chapter just filled with grace. It drips out of every bit of it. Let me just read to you from verse 6 just to remind you of that. If you've got your Bibles open, you like Mike to follow along. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 5 says this. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace, isn't it? Undeserved. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 5, I think, just drips with this concept of grace. Have a look at the the end of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. There we read this, we see this. It says, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that's just marvellous. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. But then perhaps it's not surprising, is it, that Paul goes on to then pose this rhetorical question at the start of chapter 6. If grace increases to meet an increase in sin, why not keep on sinning? Why not just live the way that we used to live? Living for ourselves. Why should we have a changed heart? Why should we seek that? That's Paul's question, isn't it? We don't know if it was a question that maybe the Roman church had thrown to Paul at some point or maybe Paul had come across this preaching from others, this this question from others while he was preaching the gospel in different parts of the world. It's a good question though, isn't it? See, if we're all sinful by nature... And if God in his great grace and mercy has made a way for us to be in his family despite our sinfulness, is there any need or any reason for us to even try to live a life that pleases God? Or we might even want to press this question a bit further. If grace abounds so that no sinfulness is beyond the reach of God, why not make use of that abundant grace? Why not test the infinite capacity of grace? Imagine for a few moments that they took away the speed limits on the road between Crafers and Murray Bridge and instead they put up a sign, instead of the 110 sign, they put up this sign that said, on this stretch of road, the officers of the law will operate under the basis of grace. How fast would you want to drive between Crafers and Murray Bridge? I've got a Kia Carnival minivan. I'd love to test the minivan out. <laughs> Can we get past 120, 130? How fast would this minibus go? See, if we're operating in the space of grace, and that grace is abundant, why not put the grace to the test? That's the thrust of the question at the start of chapter 6, isn't it? But behind it, I think, is this bigger idea. Does the gospel enable change? And if it does... By what power or by what mechanism does the gospel mean that we can be set apart to live for God? Another way to put it is, does the gospel make a difference to the way that Christians live their life? That's what I want to explore with you over the next 14 verses in Romans chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles open, I'd love you to turn there with me. It's on page 1751 of the Black Bibles. So here's that rhetorical question that Paul poses in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul answers that question with really just three words in verse 2. And then he expands on that answer in verses 3 to 11. 
In verse 2, he says, by no means. By no means. Because of grace, shall we keep on sinning? By no means. He doesn't leave much wriggle room, does he? In the verses that follow, Paul adds flesh to his emphatic no. The reason why he is so emphatic at this point, he says it's because we've died to sin and we've been made alive for God. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, I think it's a legitimate kind of reason to fire a question back at Paul at this point. And that question is, when? I feel very much alive today. When then did I die to sin? What do you mean, Paul? In the next few verses, Paul goes on to explain what he means by this. He starts by saying something that he expects his readers to understand in verses 3. And then in verse 4, he builds on that foundation. Here's what Paul expects them to know. He says, when you were baptized into Jesus, you were baptized into his death. Now, it seems at this point that Paul thinks that his interlocutor or his straw man or the person that he's having an argument with will already know this truth. But for some of us today, that might be a bit surprising. That in being baptized means that we've also died the death of Jesus. How does that work? What does Paul mean? Because when you think about baptism, I wonder, what do you think is happening in baptism? We had a great baptism here a, a few, maybe a few months back with baby Lucy Winter. You might remember. Remember we had that baby bath up here and the water was too hot and I thought we were going to cook Lucy. So we put some cold water in before we baptized her. It was a delightful day. Or you might remember Joe's baptism out on the grass a bit before that or Rachel's before that. What was going on in baptism? What are we doing when we baptize someone? What do you think about? Well, I think especially in the case of Joe, because Joe was a little older, I think we see in Joe's baptism a public declaration of what it is that Joe believes. We saw Joe declare his love and his allegiance to King Jesus. And that, of course, is the right and proper thing to do in a baptism. That is what we're seeing in a baptism. But baptism is a very rich sacrament, a very rich expression of what's going on. I think in baptism we can also see a dramatization of the story of God's people. So baptism might remind us of the escape from slavery in Egypt, through the waters of the Red Sea into the promised land and life there with God. And Paul kind of speaks about that in this chapter a little bit later on as well. But here what I think Paul really wants us to see is that baptism is also a symbol to remind us of our incorporation or our belonging in Jesus. Our incorporation or our belonging with Jesus. Baptism functions as a way of unifying or incorporating us. Let me show you how Paul thinks about this. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You'll find that on page 1780 of your Bibles. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians as well. And here in 1 Corinthians 10, he's reminding his readers of their place in God's great story. And Paul is speaking about the exit from slavery in Egypt and the escape to the promised land with Moses. Now let me read these verses to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I think I'm reading from verse 1 here. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into 
Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So when the Israelites escaped Egypt through the Red Sea, they didn't actually get wet, did they? Remember that story? But here Paul speaks of a baptism into Moses. He speaks of being incorporated into Moses and their union with him. Otherwise they were plunged into Moses, incorporated with him. And here's the kicker, come back to Romans. Here's what it means for us. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, those of us who have accepted him as our Lord and our Saviour, We've been plunged into Jesus. We've been immersed in him. And that means that we share in his death. That means that our old self has died. Our old hearts of stone, so to speak, have stopped beating. Our selfish existence has ended. It's died. It's no longer. Let me read to you what Frank Tielemann says. I've got the quote on the screen behind me. I think it's a great quote. He says, he says, by uniting them with Christ's death, God has not only atoned for their sins, but dealt a fatal blow to the self-focused existence in which human beings since Adam are born. Isn't that amazing? We are united with Jesus through baptism. Now, before I move on, I just want to say a couple of other words about baptism just to avoid some confusion here. It's not the actual baptism that plunges us into Jesus. That's done on the basis of faith. If you remember a few weeks back, we talked about faith being the basis of which we are accepted by Jesus. Baptism is really just a way of demonstrating a spiritual reality of what has already happened through faith. You might be here today wondering, should I be baptized? Should I get baptized? If you love Jesus, if you've placed your allegiance with Jesus and you haven't already been baptized before, and the answer is yes, it would be a great thing to do. Not because it plunges you into Jesus in the same sense that your faith did, but it does help us to see what has happened in the spiritual realm with our own eyes. It's a great encouragement for each other. Baptism demonstrates the spiritual reality of what's already happened, being plunged into him. And being baptized, accepting Jesus by faith means that we're moved. Moved from death to life. Moved from only being able to worship ourselves to being able to worship God. Moved from the realm, we saw that here, moved from this realm where sin had mastery over us to the realm where grace reigns, where we're free to live for God. Our union with Jesus means that spiritual movement can happen. He's the one that transports us from one realm to another. Paul says, should we go on sinning? His answer is by no means. Why? Because our old self, which had no choice, it was mastered by sin, has died and we've been given new life where it is possible to live for God. And I hope this morning that's what you want. See, when you placed, if you're a Christian, when you placed your hope and trust in God, I hope you wanted to move from a place where you could not live for God, where you were mastered by sin, to a place where you can live for God, where you can please him, where you can honour him with your life. What has God done? 
He's united us with Jesus. He's plunged us into him. And he's done that with the intention that we might live for him. Let's just pause for a minute or two to think about that and to think about what that means for us in reality. So if we've all died to sin as Christians, then you would think that Christians universally would be perfect, wouldn't you? If we've died to sin, that we'd be pleasing to God in every way, that you'd look around, see Christians, that they'd be great people, that they'd be honourable, that they'd be righteous, that they'd be upright, that they'd be truthful, faithful, obedient. Is that the case? Is that what our experience looks like? I think so. And when we look at our own hearts, those of us who have placed our trust and allegiance in Jesus, well, I can't really speak about your hearts, but I can look at mine. I know my own heart so often feels like a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. Has Paul got it wrong then? What do you think? I think if we're answering that, we need to read very carefully through this chapter. I think it's an important thing that we read it carefully because this is how our experience matches up with what the Bible says. Let me show you. Have a look with me at verse 5. I think this shines through in verse 5. It says this, it says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. I want you to notice here the tenses. Remember your tenses from high school? Present, past, future, those sort of things. I want you to notice here it says that we have been united in his death. That has already happened. And we will, in the future, be united with him in his resurrection. What does that all mean? Well, it means that today we live in a time where we're kind of in between these two realms, in between the white sheet and the black sheet. We're kind of in an overlapping period of these times, an overlap of the ages or an overlap of the realms, you might want to say. We're stuck in a world where sin is still part of what our life is like. We're stuck in a realm where sin traps and burdens us. And so we wait knowing that we one day will be raised like Jesus. Then we will live for God as we should. But now we live in a time where the two ages overlap. And I think most of us will feel that tension the tension of these overlapping realms or ages. And see, Paul is, is here trying to help us see that God's intention is that we should live a new life. Indeed, he's shown us the reality that our old life has already been crucified. And yet Paul makes, makes no promises here, does he? That we will live without sin in the present. Indeed, I think Paul goes on to show us, to prepare us for what life is like in these overlapping times. He does that by showing us that those of us who have had our old life crucified, that we've died to that, those of us who have been united with Jesus, he tells us we're no longer ruled by sin. Not that we can't sin, but that we're no longer ruled by it. That, I think, is the gist of verse 6. Have a look at that with me. There we read that our old self, and that self that was ruled by sin, ruled by sin, That old self has been crucified. And our new self then is ruled by the king of kings. We have a new master. 
wonder what you think that means for us practically. I think it means we have the potential to be different, the potential to change, the potential to turn our backs on sin. I think it means that the husband who's on a business trip can walk away from the woman at the bar who seems so compelling because Jesus is their master, not sin. I think it means that a student who's struggling with an assignment might choose to hand in a paper with a couple of questions incomplete rather than accepting a cheat sheet from a friend. I think it means that the businesswoman might be able to declare a conflict of interest even if it means losing thousands of dollars. See, I think it means that it's possible for us to turn away from sin because we're not ruled by it anymore. But we need to be careful at this point, don't we? Or we'll become frustrated because the reality is that we do live in a world that is still sinful. Paul's not saying that Christians will never sin again or that we won't feel the pull of sin in our lives. No, we live in the overlap of the ages. But we no longer serve sin. We have a new master and that master is righteousness. This is spelt out, you know, with another example really at the, in the second half of this chapter. We haven't got time to look at that this morning, but I would encourage you to have a look at the second half of chapter six. Read through that this week. Because the reality for us is that we either serve the master that is sin with the end point that we face death and condemnation or we serve the master that is Jesus and we face a life of grace. So surely then the answer to the question is can we change? Is change possible? Well the answer is yes, we're not stuck, we're not trapped in sin, we're not mastered by it but we may still feel burdened by it we need to remember at the same time though that those of us who have placed our allegiance in Jesus he is our ruler we need to remember that we will be raised and we need to live according to that hope and that reality I mentioned earlier that um, I listened to Andrew Heard talk on this and I'm borrowing an illustration from Andrew I think he actually borrowed this illustration from someone else as well But I haven't been able to come across a better illustration to help nail this point. Here's the illustration. Think of sin being a bit like gravity. It exists everywhere in our realm. Gravity, like sin, weighs us down. It holds us down. Now I want you to think of a caterpillar. A caterpillar feels the effect of sin or the effect of gravity. A caterpillar will be stuck to the ground or stuck to the leaf, wherever it is. It feels the oppression of sin, gravity. Now what happens when a caterpillar comes of age? It goes and makes a cocoon, doesn't it? And in that cocoon it kind of dies to the caterpillar self. Comes to new life, not as a caterpillar, but as a butterfly. A butterfly still feels the effect of gravity or sin, doesn't it? But a butterfly has the ability to be able to flap its wings and fight against the pressure of sin, fight against the pressure of, of gravity and fly up and reach upwards. I think it's a bit what it's like for us. We have the ability to fight against sin and to fly up because our old self has died. It's a great illustration, isn't it, of what it means to die to sin and to be given 
new life. In the here and now, we still need to battle against sin. But it can be overcome because sin is no longer our master. How do we do that? How do we fight against sin? I guess that's the question that comes out of that. And I think verses 11 to 13 of our passage kind of help us deal with that. We're told to think of what we are, to count ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God. Now, this is not just mindfulness, although it is asking us to change the way that we use our minds to have a new mindset. It's not simply mindfulness, though, because it's based on the certain reality that we've been united with Jesus in his death and that we will be raised with him in his resurrection. And that leaves us in a place where it is possible to fight against sin. And indeed we should do so. It's possible to change. You see, each of us who have put our hope and trust in Jesus have been freed from the ultimate destination of sin, that's death and condemnation. And that freeing was for a purpose, wasn't it? I think we've seen that a number of times in this chapter already. We are freed from sin to live for God. It's there in verses 4, verses 10, and verse 11. We are freed from sin in order to live for God. See, when you were united with Jesus in his death, when you in in faith put your hope and trust in Jesus, that's what you were doing. You were embracing life with God. You were saying yes to living for God. It means we have a bit of a role or an obligation, doesn't it? To use what we've been given in the service of God. We have an obligation to serve the master who reigns. We require discipline on our part. We need to seek to resist that pull of gravity or that pull of sin that will weigh us down. And we're going to keep doing that, even if at times we're overcome by sin, overcome by gravity, and we crash down to the ground. We're to get back up and keep serving our Master Jesus. Is it possible to have a changed heart? That's the question I asked you at the start. I think Paul shows us in chapter 6, yes, it is possible. Because our old heart has died, and we've been given new life in God. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for what you have done in our life through the death and resurrection of your son. Thank you that in your grace and mercy you've incorporated us into your son that we can have new life in him. Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us who show us and demonstrate what it means to live a life of faith. We ask that you would keep empowering us through your spirit to to live for you and to walk in your ways. Amen.